As we continue our journey through the book of Exodus together, we've been uh, sort of watching uh, God give instruction over these last number of chapters uh, to Moses uh, there on the mount receiving revelation from the Lord regarding the Uh, construction of the tabernacle worship system Uh, and over these prior chapters we've been looking at God has been speaking to Moses revealing things to him showing things to him regarding the tabernacle itself the tent like structure that they were to erect uh, as well as all the furnishings that went along with it internally as well as externally in the courtyard area the altar the uh, the bronze uh, laver where the priests would wash we saw the institution and the ordination of the priesthood itself and as this sort of comes to a close now as Moses has received all these different uh, dimensions of how things were to be built remember they were in some way uh, to be done exactly according to God's instruction because in some way they were representative of what somehow exists in the eternal dimension and they were reflective of actual eternal realities that exist in the heavenly realm and therefore Moses was given very specific dimensions specific instructions that were to be followed and he's received all these things we now come to chapter 31 where the Lord then declares to Moses It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And indeed, I have also appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then verses 7 through 11 give a recap of all these things we've been studying and the instructions of the different furnishings and implements that were a part of the tabernacle worship system verse 7 the tabernacle of meeting itself the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it which would be in the most holy place the rear room of the tabernacle where God's presence would be manifest all the furniture of the tabernacle the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand, that menorah that we talked about as you went into the first room that would be over to your left was an oil-burning lamp to give light inside for the priest to perform the ministry there inside the tabernacle. All the utensils, verse 8, the altar of incense that we looked at last week together that was right there before the veil that separated the holy place, the first room, from the rear room, which was the most holy place, that veil was there, and right in front of it was the altar of incense uh, that the priest was to burn incense on in the morning and the evening. And remember, that was representative of prayer and how, uh, like incense rising up, that sweet aroma is a picture of our prayers ascending before God, giving pleasure to His heart as we communicate to Him and speak to Him in prayer. 
Verse 9, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils that was out in the courtyard where the uh, basically the fire would burn on the altar and they would give the sacrifices there upon that altar as the priests would slay them and put them upon the altar to be burnt. The laver and its base where the priests would do their washings uh, on a regular basis to be ceremonially clean as well as to be prepared uh, to go in and to cleanse themselves after they would work with the different sacrificial animals that were given. Verse 10, the garments of ministry, the priestly garments that we looked at, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests and that anointing oil, remember with its special composition, the sweet incense that was used for the holy place. And he says, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So what we have described here in verse 1 through 11 is basically as God comes to the end of giving Moses all the instructions that he's given to him to build the tabernacle, which furnishings, all the implements, the different uh, garments that the priests were to have uh, custom made for them to wear uh, the ephod uh, and the breastplate with the different engraved stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel and all these different things. Uh, Moses receives the blueprint, if you would, all the dimensions, all the instructions for how these things were to be designed, constructed, and built. Uh, but Moses himself didn't have the capability to be able to design and to create and to make these things. So what we have now is basically God setting forth to Moses instructions saying, listen, this is the work in which I would have you to do. And these now are the workmen whom I have chosen, whom I have appointed to be able, basically, in essence, you could say, to fulfill the vision that I have just given to you, Moses. You notice that we have reference uh, on two different occasions, the end of verse 6, that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then again in verse 11, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. These uh, craftsmen, these men who had special skills in bronze and, and to work with metals, to make special carvings out of wood, to also serve as seamstresses, to be able to uh, tailor make the different garments for the priests and so forth. But again, God is saying, Moses, according to all that I've commanded you, they shall now do. They'll be the ones to construct what I have given you a vision of. And, and I love to see just how God, again, even from the Old Testament worship system to the way God works in, in the, the worship system of the New Testament church as well, how God uses the complementary giftings among his congregation and his people to be able to work together in cooperation to bring about his purposes, to facilitate his plans. You know, here is Moses. He's the representative, the shepherd of God's people, the shepherd of the congregation. And God is speaking to him. God is giving him vision and showing him what God's plans and intentions are. But yet God says, Moses, what I've shown you, uh, I haven't called you specifically to do because you don't have those specific capabilities. Uh, you don't have the enablements and skills to fulfill some of these specific things that were somewhat practical aspects of ministry. So he says, I have called and chosen these specific men who he identifies in our first few verses of the chapter, and I have called them 
to fulfill and to accomplish what I have commanded and given revelation to you to do. And, and I like this, how, how God, uh, again, working in cooperation and partnership can give vision to one person, maybe vision to a spiritual leader, and then he brings alongside those in a place of spiritual leadership, those who have the capabilities uh, and the divine enablement to actually facilitate and to, if you would, kind of... Uh, put together the skeleton and the meat on the bones to make the vision of God given to one man actually come to life and come into being. You know, and I've seen this taking place so many times among the body of Christ. This is such a beautiful, wonderful thing. I, I remember to this day still sitting in a, a board meeting many, many years ago when we were pastoring Calvary Chapel in New York there and, and one of the board members referring to sort of, you know, the, the, the gentleman who kind of became one of my right-hand men in, in ministry, ended up serving on staff together with me and, and basically saying, you know what, Tim, it's very obvious that what God has called you to do is to fulfill the vision that he gives to Tony. And, and in two senses, it was a compliment to Tim, and it was a humbling reality for me because, Tony, God shows you things, but then you don't know how to get them done. <laughs> and, and, and so many times, I can't tell you how many times I saw that come to pass, where the Lord would put something on my heart, or he would you know, give me something, and I'd say, I really sense this is what the Lord would have us to do, or you know, he wants us to, you know, to step out and, and do this outreach, or you know, he wants us to, to, to move in this direction, and, and, and I could articulate those things, and then once they kind of resonated with, with the other elders and our board, then it was kind of like that, that was about as far as I could bring it. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, but, but but how do we get this done now, Tim? You know, how do we actually make this happen? And and can you somehow? And he just had a real divine enabling from the Lord to be able to hear the vision and to kind of hear what God wanted to do, and then to kind of begin to just make the thing take shape and take form and actually see it come to pass with the gifts of administration and skills and certain capabilities that I just didn't possess. And I think this is a beautiful thing here. Here Moses receives, he receives all the revelation from God, but then God says, but Moses, I know that you don't have skills to construct these things and to accomplish these things, and they have to be done well. They have to be done with excellence, and they have to be done exactly the way that I've commanded you, and that mattered to God. So God said, listen, I have a work to do, and therefore I will raise up the workmen to accomplish my work. And that's basically what we have God referring to here in these first few verses where God says in verse 1, he, he says to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. So God wants, there must have been more than one Bezalel in the, apparently in the congregation of Israel. It was maybe a common name uh, like a John or a, a Fred or something in our day. And so he says, make sure I've called a specific man, a, a, a unique individual who I have selected. And he identifies clearly who he was to be through his tribe and his lineage. And God says, I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to be able, notice, to be able to design artistic works. So he had a creativity. He had sort of an architectural uh, you know, design capability where he could envision what needed to be done. And he could actually, with a creative mind, be able to you know, kind of maybe put it into a drawing. He could see it and envision it. 
as well as the fact that he had the ability to actually do manual labor and skills to make it happen. He had the ability to work in gold and silver and bronze, so he was a metal worker. He had skills in that, in cutting of jewels for setting, in carving of wood, and that's not just sawing off boards to make them the right dimension. The idea there is a skilled woodworker, like you know, a cabinet maker or someone who does custom furniture or you know, trim work, a skilled worker and craftsman with wood, someone who's skilled in the area of workmanship and all manner of workmanship, as well as God says, I've also appointed another man, a Aholiab, uh, again, with the same type skills, and it seems that they were to provide oversight, it says verse 6, to all of those whom God put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans. So it seems there was a group there was actually a team of workers who had these type of capabilities to do construction and metalwork and craftsmanship in the different areas to build all these things that were to be a physical functioning part of what God was going to do among the ministry by his spirit in the tabernacle. But all of these physical aspects were necessary. They were essential. They were a part of the process. And, and so therefore God creates a team with that capability and he puts two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, as sort of overseers to make sure that this work would get done. But I love the reality here that you basically see, as I said, when God has a work to do, God provides workers to get that work done. And I think this is just another testimony of the reality that when God is guiding in an area to get something done, then God will supply what is necessary to get that work done. Whether it's the finances, whether it's the workers, whatever it is. That, that if God is truly leading in, in a work or a ministry or to get something accomplished and it truly is something that is of the Lord, then God will raise up whatever is necessary to make sure that it can come to pass. He will supply whatever is required, whether it's workers with the skills and capabilities necessary and the heart and interest to want to be involved. Or whether it's, again, the resources that God... We, we don't need to, to begin to strive or to force or to try and make something happen. And, and we have to step back at times if we don't see God supplying and live by both sides of it and say, well, you know, if we don't have the workers or we don't have the supply to seem to get this done, then maybe this isn't God's work. Maybe this was just a good idea somebody had. And when God is doing something, whether, again, it's the establishing of a ministry or the, you know, the, 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 any type of thing that he wants to accomplish, we see here that God says to Moses, before he even comes down and starts, even when he has the vision, God says, Moses, no worries, I have already called a group of individuals who are going to facilitate what's necessary to get these things built and constructed to bring the tabernacle worship into a reality to get it constructed and built in the very design and artistic oriented way that God wanted it to be done. God says, I've called Bezalel by the son of Uri. Again, notice, Moses didn't select God's workmen. God selected him. Bezalel didn't run for the you know, uh, opportunity. There, were, there was no election. There was no congregational vote. There was no nominating of people. Even Moses himself as the shepherd leader of the congregation. It necessarily wasn't even his choice. God told Moses who he selected. 
God said, these are the two men who I have selected for this area of ministry. And we see the same pattern throughout the word of God and it's important. Same way in Acts 13 when they were praying together, it says the Holy Spirit spoke and said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them to. And when God has his work, God will select his workmen. And that's important that we that we recognize who God has called, who God has identified in the areas of his works, those to be in oversight, those to function in areas of ministry. We would, Lord, who have you called? Not who should we pick, but Lord, show us who you've called. Identify to us who you want in those roles because notice those who God calls, God divinely enables and equips. And the calling of God always comes with the enabling of God. If somebody steps out and they're not called by God because of self-promotion or because we just take anybody, hey, we need somebody and uh, you've been here two weeks and you're breathing, so you know, c- can you do this? Well, that's not a very wise idea because if God hasn't called them, then necessarily we have no idea whether or not God's enabled them and most likely he hasn't. But when God truly calls the individual and chooses them, we see verse 3 there that God says, I've called him and therefore I have also looked filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding in knowledge in all manner of workmanship. So God specifically filled him with the spirit of God to enable him with the unique capabilities that he needed for his particular ministry and calling that God had put him into in his service. And the same applies for us. You know, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God to serve in whatever capacity he may call us to. And I'll tell you, perhaps for some of you tonight, this should be a real encouragement. This is a metal worker. This is a, this is a Spirit-filled carpenter. This is a Spirit-filled manual labor type worker. And you know what? I think so many times we have this wrong idea where we think, well, I mean, yes, somebody who's going to you know, stand up and teach the Word of God, well, I mean, they need to be filled with the Spirit because they're going to teach the Bible or preach the Gospel or somebody that's a missionary needs to be filled with the Spirit. Or, and, and yet the reality is, is listen, these were Spirit-filled mechanics and artisans and construction workers And whatever God has called you to do and gifted you to do, you know what? It is a wonderful thing that if God's called you to do something manual and he's given you an aptitude to do those things, listen, he wants to fill you with his spirit so that you can excel in that thing God's called you to do. That you'd be a spirit-filled banker to the glory of God. That you'd be a spirit-filled salesperson to the glory of God who sees your calling as your ministry and the divinely enabled thing that God has given you to do with that aptitude. And he wants to divinely fill you with his spirit so that you can excel in it to the best of your ability so that it can be contributing to what he wants you to do and Again, we see in the, the book of Acts as well, in chapter 6, when the church began to grow and, and, and just really the responsibilities were increasing and, and with growth comes challenge, with growth comes growing pains. And as a result of that, remember, there started to be a complaint among the Hellenist and, and the Jewish widows basically saying, hey, our widows seem to be getting neglected. And this widow's ministry, this ministry of waiting tables and supplying food to help out those who had needs in the church was beginning to struggle and people were complaining. And it came to a point where the apostles said, look, 
It's not that we're above doing this, but it wouldn't be wise for us to neglect the prayer and teaching of the Word of God that we're primarily called to, to spend our time and to invest our energies in, in waiting tables and doing practical tasks because this is the primary thing we've been called to. And if we stop doing this, the rest of the church is going to suffer if we're not tending to the primary calling God's given to us. So what do they say? They said, select from among yourselves seven men. And it says what? Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, men of good reputation to care for this business. And we'll appoint them over this. Again, listen, to wait on tables. They had to be spirit-filled table waiters. To be waiters, in a sense, waiters. They had to be spirit-filled to do that. They had to be full of wisdom. There was, oh, well, this is just manual. I'll just, just wing it. I can just make it happen. No, they had to be spirit-filled even for that. Listen, whatever God's given you to do, whatever he's put in your hand, Lord, make me a spirit-filled whatever you are. Whether it's what you do to serve in the local church or how God uses you to serve among the world, don't ever negate the fact that God's divine enablement can help you excel and, and would make you excel as he gives you special knowledge and wisdom to do what you well for the, do well for the glory of God. And here, God calls and he anoints with his spirit to help them excel supernaturally to create all these different artistic works and the, the construction of the bronze and silver and all the implements of the furnishings. He identifies these two men and other artisans who would serve under their oversight to construct these things. So God says, Moses, they shall construct everything, verse 11, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses... Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So, again, God comes back to the point of keeping the Sabbath. Now, he gave instruction regarding the Sabbath back in chapter 20, when he gave to Moses the, the, the listing of what we often call the Ten Commandments. So Moses has already received instruction about the Sabbath, and now God comes back again, right before he goes back down to share all these things with the people, and he reminds him once again, he reinforces once again the importance of the observance and, and honoring the Sabbath as God instituted it among the people of Israel. And again, it almost seems like, well, what, why, why would this be here? Why does God come back to this again? Well, perhaps the reason being is that when Moses went back down the mountain with all this vision and all this, in a sense, kind of pretty heavy workload of, okay, we have to construct this tabernacle and build all these furnishings and set up the worship system. And it was kind of going to be a lot of work. Would you agree? There was a pretty hefty amount of work to get done. But perhaps God is saying, listen, but in the midst of the work, do not neglect to take times to rest and to pace yourself and to keep your focus on God because if you get all consumed in the work and you neglect what it means to at times just rest in the Lord and to keep your focus on the Lord and in a sense you think in the midst of the work, well, well I mean, we have a lot to do so maybe once we get everything built and constructed then we'll honor the Sabbath again. Then we'll spend a little time worshiping or then we'll rest a little bit once in a while and, and, and God is just reminding, no, no, m m there's a balance here. There's a time to work and there's a time to rest. There's a time to work and there's a time to stop and to worship. 
So he reminds Moses once again of the emphasis and the importance. He says, speak to the children of Israel so that they don't get off track as all this workload is set before them and they're anxious to get into this new ministry and and to establish the, the work of the worship system. He says, tell them, surely my Sabbath you shall keep. Notice this repetition, verse 13, for it's a sign between me and you, between God, Yahweh God, and the nation of Israel throughout your generations. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it, the idea is dishonors it, disregards it as unimportant or unnecessary and does their own thing, or begins to neglect it and and become presumptuous thinking it's not necessary for them or to honor God because he's commanded it. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. That's pretty severe. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 15, work shall be done for six days. But the seventh, again, God reminds them about the Sabbath, work to be done for six days, but the seventh, the last day of the week, is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. That day belongs to the Lord exclusively. God gave them six days to accomplish the work that he had for them to do, but he said on that seventh day, I want you to cease from that work. I want you to rest, and I want you to just trust me. And I want you to focus on me and spend time being rejuvenated and letting your physical body as well as your spirit just be rejuvenated as you worship and focus on me and cease from trying to strive to get more work done. Whoever does any work, verse 15, on the Sabbath day, again God warns, he shall surely be put to death. And ultimately, when we get into the book of Numbers, we'll see that actually come to pass where on the Sabbath day, they find an individual violating the Sabbath and they have to fulfill capital punishment upon this individual who, who was violating this in the book of Numbers. So, so this is a, was a considered a capital offense from God's perspective. This is how important it was to God. It mattered to him. Verse 16, therefore... And take note of these verses. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. This was a covenant, God said, between himself and the children of Israel. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, again, the pattern, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, I want you to take note. In fact, I got it starred in my Bible there. It was underlined in my Bible there, so that means maybe you should start in your Bible there too. I want you to take note, particularly verse 16 and 17. I'm going to read it again so it's impossible to miss. God says, therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant, a covenant between Yahweh God and the children of Israel. It is a sign, verse 17, between me, Yahweh God, and the children of Israel forever. God creates a covenant between himself and the children of Israel, and that covenant is, is based in the observation of keeping Sabbath. 
That is the congregational covenant that God has given to the children of Israel. The individual covenant he gave to them, remember, was circumcision. They had an individual covenant, the sign of circumcision, and they had a corporate covenant, if you would, which was the, the sign of them observing the Sabbath. And it was regulated upon the children of Israel as a sign between Yahweh God and the children of Israel as a perpetual covenant. I point that out to you because nowhere does the Bible teach that that is a perpetual covenant or that it is mandated upon the church to keep Sabbath. The Bible is very clear that the Sabbath institution was a sign between Yahweh God and the nation of Israel. His chosen people, the Jews. It was to be a perpetual covenant for them. A unique perpetual covenant for them. You know, as the church, uh, you know, certainly we understand the realities of the Sabbath and what it represents, uh, but yet we are not mandated to observe Sabbath and to keep Sabbath as it was regulated because it was something given to God and the children of Israel. What is the covenant that we have received as the church? Well, Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. There is a covenant that God has given to the church, to New Testament believers, and that is the celebration of the cup that reminds us of the finished work of the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross, who the Bible says is the end of the law and the fulfillment of the law that all took place in Christ. That Jesus fulfilled all those things. It tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that the Sabbaths as well as the feasts were a shadow of things to come, but yet the substance, the reality, the weight of it all, it says, is found in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us so well that there is a rest now for the people of God and that in a sense our Sabbath, our rest that we enter into is to enter into the rest that Jesus himself provides through his finished work upon the cross so that we can cease from our labors to try and make ourselves righteous before God. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. See, think about what the Sabbath was for the nation of Israel. Basically, it was something God instituted, again, as a sign and as a covenant with them, as a people, uniquely. But basically, God says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day, you shall cease from your labors and do no work. And instead, what? You have to trust me to provide for you what you're not going to work for and acquire and provide for yourself by working on that seventh day. Correct? In essence, God was saying that seventh day is a time where you cease from trying to create and work and strive and generate for yourself and provide for yourself. I want you to cease from work and to trust me in faith to provide for you in that seventh day what you don't create by your own works and efforts. And you've got to trust me to provide for you what you need. And of course, that becomes a beautiful picture in the same way God gave them also the Sabbath year. They were to cease from their farming in the seventh year and trust God to give them a bumper crop to provide during that seventh year. 
But that becomes a picture of really what, again, the Sabbath represents for you and I as Christians because in essence, God says, Jesus now is our Sabbath rest. He is our Sabbath in a sense. We cease from our works and our efforts to try and provide righteousness for ourselves and to try and work to make ourselves right with God and to present God every ounce of effort of every day, all of our energies, seven days a week, we're going to try and make ourselves so right with God. And God says, no, no, you need to trust me. You need to cease from your work and trust me to provide for you what you're not going to work, achieve, and acquire on your own by just in faith believing I'll provide for you what you need. What does God provide for us? He provides for us His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And we enter into that rest. That's our Sabbath rest. We enter into the rest of, Lord, thank you that by faith I can receive the finished work of Jesus as my righteousness and I don't have to strive and wrestle and strain, but I can enter into the rest of knowing I'm right with God I can rest I'm at peace with God because my faith is in the finished work of Jesus and what he accomplished and therefore I have that Sabbath rest I enter into by faith to experience that but again just an important thing to take note of here that God establishes this for Israel he institutes it for them and I just point that out because again is it a good pattern? Yes, I think it's a wonderful pattern. If you want to honor the pattern of taking a day of rest I think that's wise. I think you should do that. But the day of rest and worship throughout the New Testament from the early church always seemed to be the eighth day the day of new beginnings the day of grace when they would assemble together to worship which is typically why churches typically gather on Sundays because we see that pattern from the book of Acts. But for us to esteem one day or another or say that we have to keep Sabbath, listen, if you're going to keep Sabbath, then you've got to keep the whole law. Uh, and you've got to work a six-day work week, too. Use that to scourge people right away, too. They like a five-day work week, and they're two days off. So if you want to keep Sabbath, then you work six days, and you only get one off. You've got, you got to keep the whole deal if you want to put yourself under the law. But uh, we don't live under the law. We live under grace. And yet God established this for them. And it was important, as God gave it to them as a perpetual covenant and a sign, as the children of Israel. Verse 18, and when it says, God had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, verse 18, he then gave to Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, notice, written with the finger of God. So here comes Moses now back down the mountain and he has these tablets of stone with the things that God has spoken to him written with the finger of God. He has the commands, the words of God, the will of God written on tablets of stone coming back down the mountain now with a record of these things to share them with the people. You know, the wonderful thing as I look at this is to think how, again, the glory of, of, of the New Testament covenant in Jesus Christ is the Bible says now. The Bible says now in the New Covenant that he writes his will on the fleshly tablets of our hearts. That we don't have tablets of stone, that God actually writes his will on our hearts. The psalmist says, I delight to do my will, O God. And, and, and how God now, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Jeremiah 31 describes the new covenant where God says, I will put my law into their minds and I will write it on their hearts. 
And now from internal impulse, not from external constraint where we're trying to follow laws and regulations. No, the glory of, uh, of, of New Covenant Christianity and following Jesus is what was written on tables of stone as rules and regulations. God says, no, I want to be so personal. I'm going to just write those things on your heart. And you're going to live from the impulses of my spirit being impressed upon your heart. And I'll inscribe my ways and my will right on your heart so you can live from the desires that God puts into your heart. And there's this incredible intimacy where God actually gives us a whole other level of experiencing and knowing his will. But yet here, Moses comes down now. He's got the tablets of stone. He's been away for almost 40 days. Receiving these things, God supernaturally sustained him without food, without drink, miraculously being sustained by being in the presence of God. He comes back down with all of these instructions. And no doubt he's got to be thinking, man, I can't wait to share these things. I mean, you ever go away uh, for a weekend and the Lord shares some things, you think, I can't wait to get back and you know, I'm show my family these notes of what I learned on this retreat. I mean, Moses has been with God for 40 days and God's been showing him eternal and heavenly things. And he's coming back down the mountain now and he's ready to just, probably like any you know, uh, you know, minister or shepherd, he's ready to just share out of the overflow of his heart all these things that God's shown to him for the people. And he gets just a little bit of a surprise, we know, as we come back down the mountain. Verse 1 of chapter 32 says, Now when the people saw, notice that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain... The people gathered to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So again, he's been gone. We know at least 39, upwards to 40 days. And here's the day he's coming down now. And it says the people begin to what? They begin to grow impatient. Because God's not doing what they want fast enough. And the one who they see as a representative of God, he's not moving fast enough to do what they want God to do for them. So they say, look, we don't know where he's, he's taken forever. And, and, and there's a delay. I mean, again, if you're waiting for anything, I guess, you know, to wait of over a month, that's difficult when you're waiting and you want to see something come to pass. They've been waiting. When's he going to come back and tell us what God has to say? And they can see things are happening. And but when's it going to happen? When's it going to come to pass? When's it going to take place? And it seems there's a delay in their desire for what they want. Have you ever experienced that before? And, and in the midst of the delay, you start to grow impatient. And see, the danger is, think about this, if they had waited one more day, all of this catastrophe that takes place down at the bottom of the mountain would have never come to pass. They were one day short in their getting impatient because they felt like God was delaying a little longer than they would have liked him to delay. And one day prematurely, they jumped the gun and became carnal and in their fleshly efforts tried to create and generate what they wanted for themselves to make something happen. And they did it one day premature of what God was about to do had they just waited in faith patiently one more day. Man, great reminder for us because it's difficult when we sense there's a delay and we grow impatient 
But that can really be a real dangerous thing if we give in to that. So the people, they've been waiting. This, you know, He's been delaying, coming down. We don't know what he's doing. And, and, and so they turn to Aaron. Rightfully so, in a sense. Remember when Moses left, he officially, publicly, before the people, put who in charge? Aaron and her. As he was going up the mountain, he said, but Aaron and her will be with you. And he, in a sense, delegated authority to Aaron and her while he was away seeking God. And, and, you know, unfortunately, they didn't do the greatest job with their delegation here. <laughs> they didn't handle their oversight real well. My Moses was out of town. But they go to Aaron and they propose this idea. Come, they say, make us gods that will go before us. Now, I, you can't help but just look at it and think, are you kidding me? First of all, just look at the language alone. Make us gods. Listen, if you have to make your God, that's not a very good God. If, if, if you have to create your own God, that's a really weak and shallow God to be dependent. I don't want a God that I create. I want a God who created me and who controls up. Make us gods. We need some gods. Think of how ludicrous this is as well, too, that of what the people are actually asking here, make us gods so that we can worship them. The idea is here, think of what these people have seen. They saw the deliverance out of Egypt where God brought plagues, miraculous things upon the Egyptians as a part of their deliverance. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. And they walked across it on dry ground and then saw God bury the Egyptians in water. They for 40 days have every morning gotten up and seen God miraculously provide manna from heaven to sustain them every single day miraculously this manna from heaven has shown up to feed them in the midst of the desert wilderness. They watched Moses strike a rock and water come gushing out of a rock miraculously to provide for their thirst in the midst of the wilderness where they were. They saw on one occasion where there were bitter waters and God told Moses, remember, take the branch, throw the branch into the water and the waters became sweet and then they drank from those waters that were brackish and, and bitter and they miraculously transformed. So they have seen miracle after miracle after miracle and yet what do they do? They act in unbelief and they try and manipulate something in their flesh instead of waiting and trusting that this God who works miracles, he can be trusted. He can be trusted. You know, I can't help but to think how often we can fall into that same trap and, and what is so often we think? Well, if, if, if I could just see more, if I could just see something, you know, I talk to people. I, you know, I met with someone, you know, not, not that long ago, who is that same kind of thing. I want to believe, but I, you know, God's got to show me something. I got to see something. I, I, I want to believe, but I, God's got to show me He's real. I got to see something. Listen, the reality is the children of Israel saw all kinds of miracles, and what was one of their biggest problems? Unbelief. Which goes to show, seeing things does not necessarily guarantee faith or, or belief. They saw all kinds of miraculous things. Faith is an issue of the heart. It's a choice to believe. It's a decision to choose to trust God contrary to what we're thinking or what it looks like or what we're feeling like to say God is worthy to be trusted because of who He is 
And so I will choose to trust him. It seems that he's delaying. Yes, I'm growing impatient. I wish it would happen sooner. But this is a God who is dependable and I can trust him. So I'm going to trust him to do what he wants to do in his ways and in his times. I'm not going to enter into this idolatrous act whereby I create my own little you know, way of making something come to pass to facilitate some need in my life. They wanted to worship something. So instead of waiting on God and his way, they say, Moses or Aaron, make for us something to worship. Create for us something that would be like a God. In verse 2, Aaron said to them, we'll break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Not a good idea. And shows you the, the incredible weakness and failure on behalf of this man who was supposed to be a spiritual leader because he was more concerned about pleasing the people than he was about pleasing God. And I'll tell you, that is the downfall of anyone who would be in a place of spiritual leadership that if they have a greater fear of man than they do of God and they are more concerned about pleasing and meeting needs in people than they are pleasing and meeting the need of making sure God is honored and God is satisfied despite what the people are recommending or despite what people are demanding or despite what people are suggesting. My first priority as a spiritual leader is, Lord, what pleases you? Lord, what honors you? Because many times throughout the history of Israel, whether it's with Aaron here or Moses throughout, the people had desires and drives and needs and suggestions and ideas and many times they were wrong. Here's one perfect case scenario. Make us a God. And, and here Aaron, he acquiesces. He says, bring me the gold from among your wives and sons and your daughters. Again, that which they received when they came out of Egypt. The, the gold God provided for them. And now they're going to take what God gave them and use it in an idolatrous and fleshly way. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and a molded calf, made a molded calf. Again, this is what they worshipped in Egypt. They worshipped, you know, calves and animals. So the, 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 he's, he's regressing back into what they knew from being in Egypt. He's taking worldly ideas and bringing them into the congregation. Hey, well, this is what they did back in Egypt. This is what they're doing out in Egypt. So I guess we'll just follow that pattern. So he now creates this golden calf molds it probably with wood, overlays it with gold, and they said, this seems the people now, not Aaron, as he made this for them, because he's probably struggling with his own conscience, then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Is this just insanity or what? But isn't it amazing how when people don't worship God, how it's literally like insanity sets in? What they will worship? Something they'll make with their own hands, their own golden calf, their own idolatrous thing. It is amazing how when people don't worship the one true and living God, the things that they will worship and give devotion and attention and dedication to, they'll fashion their own idols and they'll give worship to those things. This is your God who brought you out of the land of you. This representation represents Yahweh God. Again, they're violating what? The very commands that God has given to Moses up on the mountain. Thou shalt have no graven image before me. Thou shalt worship no other God before me or bow down to nothing else. And here, Moses hasn't even got back with the instructions and they're already breaking them. They're already violating the very things that God gave to Moses on the mountain. So when Aaron saw it, 
and he saw that they were going in that direction, again, shows you he makes further concession and he accommodates the people. It says he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Again, tragic, tragic breakdown of spiritual leadership here, accommodating the people rather than seeking to stand strong and honor the Lord when he should have been saying, no, this is not honoring to God. This may seem like a great idea to you, but this is contrary to God's will. This is not in line with the word of God. This would not please the Lord. And instead of standing strong and representing the Lord in a way that was healthy to provide leadership, he's accommodating, he's assisting and facilitating the carnality now. And he says, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh? Pardon me? This is a golden calf. Well, we're going to accommodate now? Well, we'll kind of do a little bit of Yahweh and then we'll kind of we'll add our own stuff in with it. And isn't this a tragic breakdown many times? You know, people want, well, okay, well, yeah, we want to serve the Lord, but we want to take a couple ideas of the world and mingle them in there. And, and we're, we just want to kind of, we want to make our own thing. We want to create our own system of worship. We, we, want, we want to make God, listen, we want to make God after our image and our likeness. Oh, we want to worship God. I want to worship God. I love God. But I want to make God according to my image. And I want to approach God according to my ways and my design. So if I want to have a little concession here and, and, I, and I, want to, I want to have a little, you know, a little bit something different here, I mean, I'm just going to just live by that. I mean, I'll file some things in the Word of God. But I want to kind of be able to have it my own way. That's self-worship. That, that's self-idolatry when it boils down. So tomorrow, strange, a feast to the Lord. So they rose early on the next day and offered burnt offerings peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and the indication is indulgence of alcohol drunkenness we see as the chapter goes on and they rose up to play and that's basically just a very soft way of the word of God describing what was really blatant and lewd sexual immorality lewd erotic dancing that same term is used on other occasions to refer to physical and sexual intimacy so it's referring to sexual immorality they're, they're carousing they're drinking they're getting drunk they're, they're dancing they're naked we see later in the chapter some of them their sexual immorality taking place again a total distortion of what a true worship gathering should be and the Lord said to Moses go get down again the scene shifts back up to the mountain now and now God's having a chat with Moses who hasn't gone down yet and he says to Moses get down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves I love this God God almost like he puts aside ownership your people, Moses, they've corrupted themselves. You know, this is almost like what parents do sometimes, right? If you're a father or mother and the kids misbehave and, and I come home from work and, and my wife says to me, if one of the kids, uh, do you know what your daughter did today? Well, I thought she was our daughter. Well, not when she misbehaves, she's your daughter. You know, and it's kind of like God here. Your people, Moses, your people, they've corrupted themselves. God's almost ashamed to take ownership of them. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I've commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. 
Man, that's a strong term that God describes their disobedience and transgression and what he saw in their hearts and their attitudes. He says they are a stiff-necked people. The picture there of stiff-necked is a term really that would describe how they would try and put the yoke on an animal to get it to plow in a direction and it would resist, you know, stiffen up its neck and it would refuse and pull away the opposite direction as the master was trying to lead it in the way it was supposed to go. And what a fitting description of what humanity can be like. You know, stubborn. We can be so stiff-necked towards God. You know, here God is trying to lead us in the direction of, you know, His gracious, loving plan for our life and His will and how we can be so stubborn. And and people can be so stiff-necked and just, you know, just, just totally resistant and, and to have to force the Lord to kind of, you know, wrestle with them. And, and God says they are a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, God says, again, they had, in a sense brought the righteous judgment of God upon themselves. They had violated the commandments and dishonored the Lord and their idolatry. Now therefore let me alone, God says, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. So basically God says, Moses, they, they deserve the judgment of God. They have provoked me to anger. And he says, Moses, let me alone. Interesting dialogue that happens. Moses, leave me alone that I might consume them. And Moses, I'm just going to start over with you. Just like I did with Noah. Just like I did with him. I'm just going to, I'll start over with you all over again. And I'm going to consume them and bring my judgment against them. Because what they had done righteously merited the judgment of God. It merited God's judgment. And so God was about to bring his judgment upon them. And, and he sets this concept before Moses where basically he says, Moses, just stand still, stay put. I'm going to destroy them and I will start over with you. Now, if Moses was a self-centered, self-seeking individual, he might have scratched his head and thought, you know, they have really been difficult to deal with. I mean, in the past 40 days, it's been kind of nice being away from them. No complaining, no challenging my authority, no saying, why did you bring us to die out here in Egypt? And you know what I mean? And Moses kind of varies. This doesn't sound like a bad idea. Start all over. And I can be like Noah and like Abraham. But see, he was a shepherd leader. And his heart, like the heart of God, was concerned for the people. And he cared more about the people than he did about his own self-interests. He could have very easily just cooperated with what but he he shows the exact opposite he's more concerned about god's honor and the people's welfare than his own personal opportunity and advancement look at verse 11 then moses pleaded with the lord his god and said lord why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of egypt with power and with a mighty hand why he says god should the egyptians speak and say well God brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore, he says God, by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants in this land and I've spoken, I've given to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever Verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So what happens? Moses, as he senses the judgment of God is due, he's prompted toward intercession. 
And he begins to intercede now. Basically, that's what you have going on in verses 11, 12, and 13. Moses begins to plead with God in intercession, begging for God's mercy and that he would turn away his wrath and spare his people who deserved righteous judgment, justly so. And he says, Lord, he says, these are your people. Lord, Lord, I'm concerned about your glory. Lord, I don't want the Egyptians and people in the world to say, well, see, God couldn't sustain them and God doesn't do what he says he's going to do. And he says, Lord, your honor. I'm zealous for your honor. Please, Lord, I want to see you honored. And for your honor and glory, spare them. Lord, have mercy. And he says, Lord, you said you had a plan and a purpose. And he reminds God of his word. And he begins to pray and intercede in accordance with the will of God and the word of God. And he says, Lord, I know these people have done what they've done, but, but have mercy upon them. Lord, you're a mighty God. You're a good God. And you said that you would fulfill your promises. So he, he reminds God of what he knows the heart of God is able to do. And as a result of his intercession, verse 14, it says, the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. In a sense, his intercession, notice, it, it turns away, it forestalls the judgment of God. And listen, this is a beautiful picture because whenever the reality is that we understand the judgment of God is about to come, that should prompt us toward intercession. Because look, God actually responds. And God actually forestalls and turns away his judgment as the result of someone interceding and pleading with him and beseeching him to not bring his judgment. God honors that prayer and he listens to that intercession. Now, am I spiritual enough to understand, well, wait a minute, how does that work, God's sovereignty? And, and did Moses actually change his mind? And, and, and you know, if you want to try and figure that out and you are smart and spiritual enough, God bless you. I don't understand it, but I see it. And I see it happened in the word of God. And it shows me something about the importance and the responsibility of intercession and also the compassion and the heart of a righteous but yet a very loving God. And listen, let me say this in connection to this passage. Be careful. Don't look at this passage of Scripture and say, wait a minute here. God kind of looks like a hothead. And Moses is the one with all the compassion. You know, God's angry and he's hot-headed and he's ready to just smite people and smoke them and consume them and get rid of them. And, 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 and it's almost like God is the hot-headed one and, and Moses is trying to conciliate God's anger and he's the only level-headed, compassionate one in the picture here. Let me ask you this question. When prayer happens according to the will of God, which is the kind of prayer God honors and God answers, who prompts that prayer? God. My personal conviction is this. Here's God righteously being required in who he is to bring judgment upon those people in righteousness. And yet, though God in his righteousness must judge them, God in his loving compassion is wanting to have a righteous way whereby he wouldn't have to judge them. So what does he do in his incredible sovereign wisdom? By his spirit, he prompts the heart of a sensitive individual in tune with him. And he prompts that heart to do what? To intercede and beseech him to turn away his wrath. Because then, God has a righteous basis to answer the request of his servant and thereby turn away his wrath. You know, to me, this is beautiful. How it all works out, I don't fully understand. But to me, I see God retreating into his wisdom and his loving sovereignty. And he prompts his servant to intercede. 
because he doesn't want to judge. He doesn't delight to judge. And you know what? I, I say that to bring this to your attention. Listen, when you're prompted, nudged in your heart to intercede for someone, listen, that is a supernatural thing. Pray. Don't neglect the importance or, or, or the, the right and the responsibility to intercede for someone's soul if God is prompting you to intercede for an unsafe person or in a situation. Because listen, that may be prayer that is imperfectly in line with the will of God and God is prompting you to intercede so that he has a righteous purpose and reason to say, great, now I can answer that prayer and I can do what I really want to do anyway which is to save that person's soul or to you know, not allow them to experience the things they would because my servant is asking and therefore I'll honor that prayer because it's in accordance with my will.